you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. For the next five weeks, we are continuing on in a series called Pray Like This. Looking at the model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in both Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And more specifically, digging into each phrase so that we might have a better and a more clear understanding of what it was that Jesus was modeling for his disciples in prayer. That we might see it clearly what someone who follows Jesus should pray about. So this week, as a matter of focusing on it, I'm going to ask you to join me in saying it out loud with me. Now, we all know it. We probably all know it in different versions. We'll put it on the screen so we can all stay together. So we're going to wait until it shows up on the screen. Then we'll say it together. Which is to say, hit the space bar. Or the enter key. There we go. Join with me in saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. In Luke 11.1. Jesus had gone off to pray. And when he finishes. His disciples meet him with a question. They say Lord teach us to pray. Just as John the Baptist taught his disciples, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, please teach us. See, the disciples had watched him pray. They'd heard him pray, and now they wondered, what should we say when we pray? So they ask him, teach us. In Matthew 6, several different times over, Jesus says this, when you pray, and he's taking for granted that we'll all be praying. And I suspect at some level we all are. We talked about that last week as we started the series. Even atheists are prone to pray in the right situations and circumstances. And what Jesus does for us here is to, when the disciples ask, he puts before them and says, here's six things for you to pray about. Paul calls, would call us in Thessalonians to this. He says, pray without ceasing, ceasing in first. Thessalonians 5.17, that we would pray continually. So let me ask you this, just as a matter of honest question, what does your prayer life look like? This is your moment for self-reflection, for you to be honest with you. What does your prayer life look like? Are you regularly connecting with God in ways that suggest you're completely dependent on Him? And if you're not, the disciples weren't either. They ask him how to pray. You might find yourself in the same positions as the disciples. And to be really frank with you, it's not a bad place. So this can be a launching point for us to step into this. So when they ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, we might also learn how Because Jesus put these six distinct priorities of prayer before them, or if you like it simpler, six things we should pray about. We started last week with 
hallowing his name. We put before you that to hallow the name of the Father is to ascribe him as holy and set apart. It's to call out to a heavenly Father and recognize who he is. And as the text would say to us, that he is our Father in heaven. And what that does for us is it puts together these two contrasting pictures of God that come together in the gospel. That on one hand, we have a holy, righteous, sovereign, ruling God pictured in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, sitting on his throne with a train of his robe filling the temple, surrounded by the seraphim, calling out forever, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And on the other hand, to all those who would receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God, according to John 1. He's an intimate, personal father. He's the perfect, prototypical daddy. One who will guide us, lead us, protect us. One that wants our best for us. So when we pray to God, when we hallow his name, we literally practice the gospel. We put these two truths together. That this holy, transcendent God would take his only son, send him to dwell amongst us, to take the punishment that our sin deserved, so that we could boldly enter into his presence, call him our father, or Abba, as Jesus called him, or Daddy, as it might translate into English. We can talk to the Holy God because of the work of the Son. So wherever you stand on that spectrum, because we all do, right? Whether you're prone to only see him as a holy, righteous God, then you'll miss his personal side. Or whether you only see him as the cool dad, who's entirely personal but lacks any holiness, righteousness, or any standard for your living, we always need to be corrected. That's part of the point of prayer. We always need to be corrected so that when we show up to pray, holding on to the holy view of God and missing his intimate side, or holding on to his intimate side and missing his holy side, when we approach God the Father, we are corrected. Because if you only see him as holy and you're missing him as intimate, in that moment you need to realize what Jesus did at the cross for you. And be brought into the intimate relationship with your father. And if when you pray you only see the intimate side, you need to be brought into that moment where he's a holy, righteous God who's inviting you in. We are all corrected in that moment to pray the gospel that we might fully be able to engage with the one who is on one hand a holy, righteous God and on the other entirely personal. That's the first thing Jesus gave for us to pray about. That we would recognize fully who he is. So when we pray, we'd acknowledge fully who he is. And that brings us to the second thing we should pray about in verse 10. Your kingdom come. The simple phrase. Literally meaning, may the kingdom come soon. 
Now, the gate, I should tell you that there are a whole lot of different ways that people interpret this. So rather than leaning into academic opinions, we're going to dig into the Gospels to discern the kingdom. We've always believed here at Calvary that letting the Bible determine what the Bible says is always our best method. So it's not just a bunch of academic people telling us what it says. Let's see what the Bible says it is, and then we'll consider what it means, and then how we should pray for it. So if you're an A-type, here's your outline. What's the kingdom? What does it mean for it to come soon? And what does it look like for me to pray about that? There's your three points in case you wanted to know up front. In the book of Matthew, John the Baptist's first recorded words are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus finally begins his ministry, his first message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the kingdom was an absolutely crucial theme for Jesus. That it became his first ministry words as well as the first ministry words of the guy who was going to point to him. It was so important that John the Baptist would point saying, Repent, it's coming. And Jesus would start his ministry by saying, Repent, it's coming. The kingdom is at hand. It's coming. It's about to begin. Which is to say this, according to the scripture so far, that this kingdom is not an eschatological kingdom Which is to say, it's not a future view of the kingdom. As if we were just saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Come back now. Now while that is an absolutely valid and biblical prayer request, your kingdom come declares something much more and something much bigger than just Jesus' return. Otherwise, he would have declared it at the end of his ministry and not at the beginning. So Jesus and John the Baptist announced the coming of the kingdom. So what does the Bible say about the kingdom? Let's not guess or take my opinion for it. Let's go to the word. And if you were here this past summer, you should have plenty of clues. For all summer long, we dug into the parables of Jesus and we read statements like this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed, Matthew 13, 34. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed into his field, Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, Matthew 13, 45. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, Matthew 18, 23. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early to hire laborers for his vineyard, Matthew 21. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, Matthew 22, 2. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, Matthew 25, 1. I point all of that out to you to say that the disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom is at hand because the kingdom was a thoroughly described concept that Jesus poured out over and over and over again to his disciples and his followers and those same kingdom values 
have been passed on to us. At least that was the point of our whole summer series. The kingdom calls us to be great sowers. The kingdom calls us to work through the challenges of being rejected and the challenges of even fruit that will walk away. The kingdom teaches us that whatever the price, the kingdom is always worth it. That the kingdom will leave the 99 for the one. That we're not entitled to the kingdom, but in fact we're indebted to it until our bill was forgiven. And that it's not our righteousness that merits the kingdom, but only the righteousness of Christ that was imputed onto us when Christ died on our behalf. So when you pray, your kingdom come. You're not asking Jesus to return. You're saying, may your kingdom, as described throughout the book of Matthew, as described in Jesus' parables, may your kingdom come. May your work start. And I think at least initially it starts with us, right? May your kingdom come to me. May I know you. And I mean, may I really, really know you. To know what Christ did for me at the cross, to know its complete sufficiency for all of my needs, that though I may fall short, and I will, that his grace is always sufficient. That though I am inadequate, and I am, in him I will always abound. That though I am weak, weaker than I'll ever confess, in him I am strong. May his kingdom come and rule in my life. That I might know the sufficiency of Christ. And that I might come to know more and more and more and more about what he did for me. May his kingdom come. But, just as the parables would put before us, his kingdom is not about me. It's not about you. The kingdom is about him. The kingdom is about him and the salvation that he brought into the world, of which we're a part of. Let's peek back at the Matthew 4 passage about the kingdom. Matthew 4, 17 through 22. and Matthew 4, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is nearby. The kingdom is coming. Pick your verse, pick your translation. The kingdom is on its way. Jesus says that John the Baptist pointed it out. So what does he mean when he says the kingdom is at hand? What does he do to bring the kingdom? What does it look like? We should then look at what the next thing Jesus does. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says the kingdom is coming. And then he calls disciples to himself, which is to say that he seeks out Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. He sows generously and he produces a crop. He falls in line with all the parables that he would later teach. He calls out to them and says, follow me. And what he says next is important. 
Because I think it'd be pretty simple for us to think that what Jesus says is, follow me, and I will teach you to sit quietly in pews. Follow me, and I'll teach you to sing loud and proud and strong so that your mother will be proud of you. Follow me, and maybe you could teach a connection class or perhaps help with a wanna. Follow me, and maybe give an hour or two to make yourself feel better. Is that what he says? Why do we reduce it to say that? Why on earth would we reduce it to say that? Because it's easier. I need, I need a chair for Paula. Always bails me out. Because it's easier. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They're connected. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will teach you to catch and disciple people. And watch this. He modeled it for them immediately, having called Simon and Andrew to him. Follow me. Come along, guys. It didn't look like, hey, just listen to my words. For example, if I were to say, church, follow me, and I walked into the parking lot, what would following me look like? Going into the parking lot. For if you all sat here and considered what following me meant, you would not be obeying what I asked you to do, would you? We wouldn't let our puggles get away with it. Following me entails doing what I do. That's what Jesus put before his disciples, which is why in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So what does he do? And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called out to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and, their father and fathered him, and followed him. So Jesus calls out to these two, Simon and Andrew, follow me and I'll teach you to be fishers of men. Then when they follow him, they walk on, find two other brothers, and says, hey guys, see this is what we do here. Hey, there's James and John, let's call out to them and they'll follow us too. James, John, come with me. And they leave. See, Jesus is building the kingdom here. When he says the kingdom is at hand and begins to call people to himself, discipling people and calling them to call people to himself, he starts to initiate the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. See, when you follow him... You're called to be a fisher of men. And this concept puts out the idea that you were called into a movement, not unto a moment. See, we have this idea in church that you're called unto a moment that you might give your life to Jesus, walk down an aisle, perhaps be baptized, and that's it. You had your moment. But that's not the gospel. The gospel calls you rather into a movement where we see that Jesus Christ died on a cross to save the world of which I am a part. And God is working to save the world of which I am a part. See, this concept is not just here. It's consistent through the New Testament. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And if you've highlighted that or underlined that in your Bible, and it's a good thing to do, can you please make sure the next three verses are also highlighted or underlined? Lest you be living with an incomplete biblical truth. Because this is what he says, it's all connected in verse 18. And all of this is from God, your salvation, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, I underlined it for you, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, in Christ Jesus, in in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See that. He's forgiving people of their sins, and then giving them the message that people can be forgiven of their sins, that we might go and work to reconcile people to God, that they would hear that message, that their sins could be forgiven. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In the words of Jesus, follow me and you'll become a fisher of men. In Paul's words, you are a new creation and an ambassador carrying the ministry of reconciliation. Friends, you dig into your New Testament, that's the kingdom coming. That's the kingdom coming to Simon. That was the kingdom coming to the disciples. It was the kingdom coming in my life. It was the kingdom coming in your life. It is the kingdom still coming in this world, anticipating his return while we wait for Jesus to come back. That is the kingdom coming. So what does it look like for the kingdom to come soon? Simple answer is that the kingdom comes when fishers catch fish. When ambassadors carrying the ministry of reconciliation deliver the message. And in so doing, bring the kingdom to their families, to their friends, to their co-workers, to their workout partners, to their waiters, to their waitresses, to their baristas. We can go on and on and on and on and on. The kingdom comes when we take the message and we bring it to the world that we might tell people that we love enough about Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. And friends, all you have to do in these moments is to remember the times when you walked without Christ, when you tried to do it on your own, when you tried to make it happen, when you thought you had to be good enough, when you thought there were rules that you had to follow, only to realize it was all of Jesus. Only in Jesus could you be free to know that we have a message that is so unique in this world that the world so desperately, desperately needs. So this brings us to our final point. What does it mean when Jesus gives them the prayer priority of let your kingdom come? 
First, I'd say it involves me. I'm a part of it. I'm a part of the movement. May his kingdom come in my life. May it come to every part of my life. May his kingdom come into everything I think. May his kingdom come into everything I do. May his kingdom come into every part of me so that I might be so radically transformed into who Jesus was that as I follow him, I might become more and more and more and more and more and more and more like him. Not just in his teaching, but in his actions. May his kingdom come in my life because the more I follow Jesus, the closer my life looks like to his, the more his kingdom coming will mean that I'm going to pray for those who don't know him. And I'm going to pray for people who don't know him. Those that don't know the freedom that could be found in Jesus. That I might lift them up. That his kingdom might come to them. That I might pray for those who are still in bondage to sin and slavery and still trying to find ways to earn it in this earth. That I might pray for my family, my friends, my coworkers, my workout partners, on and on, etc., etc. That I might lift up those who don't know him. Both on a personal level, this is where you can take an Acts 1-8 model, that I should consider praying for people who are near me in my Jerusalem, in my Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that at some level I ought to be praying for people who are really close for me. I ought to pray for my neighbors, my coworkers, etc. I ought to pray for my extended family. I've got a lot of extended family that need prayer. I don't know about you. This week has been really challenging me to dig in because... This is not a lot of what I was expecting when I started digging into this text. But we're called to pray for our families, our friends, and etc. But we also ought to pray for the tribes, for the countries, for the people groups, people who have no clue and have no access to Jesus. We ought to pray that the kingdom would come to them to set the captives free, that they too might know salvation. So if you're taking baby steps into prayer, and I'm wide open to that, that if you are like the disciples who had no clue and had to ask Jesus, please teach me how, you start by recognizing who he is, who you are, you pray through the gospel. That because of the work of the Son, God, I can walk into your throne room boldly and confidently to access a righteous and holy God because of the work of your Son, and I can talk to you about anything. And if you're wanting to take baby steps into prayer, you might begin by praying for a neighbor or a family member. You don't have to cover all 7 billion people, though my five-year-old likes to. She often prays for everyone in the whole wide world. It's a pretty valid prayer request. Specifics work, but everyone in the whole wide world, according to a five-year-old, is good enough. And if you want bigger steps, bigger than just your family, can I make some other suggestions to you? There are a number of resources out there that exist. There's a book called Operation World. I happen to have a copy of it. I used to have three. I gave two of them away. If you'd like my third one, I'd give it to you and order more. Why? 
Because praying for the world is a worthwhile cause. If you don't like books, there's a website. There's also an app. If you subscribe to this, it will give you countries to pray for. Today, being October 23rd, we're called to pray for Serbia. Specifically, there are nine prayer requests. One of them is that those who claim the name of Christ would be bold in the faces of the difficulties brought on by their government and their culture. That's me simplifying a paragraph. You can also go to a place like the joshuaproject.net. It's a website you can subscribe to. You can get their email updates. And what it would tell you to pray for today, October 23rd, is for the Lakpu people of Bhutan. If you're not familiar with Bhutan, it is a kingdom just east of Nepal, south of China. It is the only government in the world that measures gross national happiness as a product. It's a fascinating place. Google the pictures of it, you'll fall in love. But you'd be interested to know that amongst the most, the many people groups in Bhutan, the vast majority of them have zero professing Christians. That's why it suggests we pray for the Lakpu people of Bhutan, that there are no professing Christians in that people group. There is no access to the gospel in that people group, that every single person in that people group is missing Jesus right now. So let your kingdom come to the people of the Lakpu people of Bhutan would be to say, God, in your divine providence, would you find a way to make yourself known in Bhutan in a radical and awesome way? And if you have to use dreams, do it. And if you have to send somebody, do it. And if you have to send me, we'll go. And if you have to send all of us, we don't know how we'll raise the money, but we'll do it. Because we're invested in your kingdom. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, we want to be so invested in your kingdom that we don't just lift up the needs, but we see ourselves as part of the answer. Calvary, we're called to pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, and the world. To pray, your kingdom come, is to ask that the heart and mission of Jesus Christ be more present in your life, and to step that out, and to begin to pray, because prayer matters, doesn't it? If you're in a church, you have to say yes, but it matters, because we broken, sinful people can walk into the beautiful, breathtaking throne room of God and talk to Him about anything. And He hears us. And He asks us to come with boldness and confidence. So He asks us to pray that His kingdom would come. Let me pray for us. Great Father in heaven, we come before you praying through the gospel. Father, just as Jesus would teach us to pray, we know that we can come to you because of the work of your Son. That you can be our Father when we believe in your Son. You become like a daddy to us. You love us in ways we will never fathom.
You guide us, protect us, and care for us in ways we will never understand. And we're allowed into your holy, sovereign, righteous presence where the seraphim are still singing holy, holy, holy. And yet you turn your gaze to us that we might make our petitions to you. And Father, as a church, we pray your kingdom come. May your kingdom be such a vested interest of our hearts, Father, that we would want to lift up our neighbors and our families to you. Father, that even thinking about my cul-de-sac, Father, I, I should pray for Miss Lynn and Miss Patty and Mr. Steve and Miss Ann and, and, and Mr. Daryl and his wife and Steve and, and Christy and Eugene and Rochelle. Father, for all of my neighbors, Father, that they would know you. Just too many important things, Father, for them not to. Father, may they know you. May your kingdom come into their lives And as I pray that, Father, would you give me the opportunities to love them, to show up in their lives, to speak to them about a salvation only to be found in Christ. Not because we're bigots, but because we know the answer. We know the only satisfactory truth in the universe. And Father, would you be with the people in Serbia now, Father, that though they claim Christ, and there's an evangelic presence growing, Father. They're being oppressed by their own government and culture to be quiet about who you are. And I pray, Father, even in the face of great adversity, that you'd give them tremendous boldness, that they would stand up and proclaim to a population that needs to hear about your truth, who you are. And Father, I pray for the country of Bhutan. Father, there are many there that don't know you, including the Lakpu people. Father, we look forward to a day when every tribe, alte ethnos in your language, every tribe will be represented in eternity. There will be Lakpus worshiping with us in eternity because your word says so. Father, may your kingdom come in that country and to that people group. Father, we lift it up to you. Father, may you continue to call us to be a praying people, even as your son modeled prayer, that we would always recognize who you are and pray that your kingdom would come. Father, thank you so much for your word, for how it teaches us and challenges us and points us in directions that we're not necessarily looking for, but Father, we need desperately. God, thank you so much for your truth. Amen.